I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like life is simply sort of going through the motions, eat, work, sleep, repeat, even religiously, coming to church, serving at church, praying each day, reading the Bible? Perhaps if you're young here and with your parents, uh, you can feel like you sort of just go through the motions that you've been dragged along to. Uh, for me, I know growing up, uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, it was very much going through the motions. Uh, the Catholic tradition has a very strict and set mass. There's a strict liturgy that's the same week in, week out. If I uh, visit a Catholic mass now, I can still just sort of recite the words. They're just so embedded in there. Uh, the one variable each week is whether our priest decided to do one of these. Uh, a message is called a homily. Uh, the great delight for me was when he said, when he said guys, I'm going to give you a rest this week. And uh, I knew that 28 minutes, bang, we'd be out of there. And uh, job done. But it's not just religious things where we can sort of go through the motions. If you do anything regularly enough or long enough, there are these moments where we ask, why? <laughs> why am I doing what I'm doing? And do I actually want to keep doing this? Maybe for you, it was a point in your life where you asked that question of playing a musical instrument. You know, going for a morning walk or swimming laps. The, the habit of buying a newspaper or doing your Wordle or checking your social media. Often there's moments in our life where we question, why are we doing what we do and do I really want to keep doing it? And often there's major disruptions in life that accelerates these questions, isn't it? Kind of these circuit breakers. We get sick or we move out of home we lose our job or a loved one dies, major events that cause us to stop and ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Often these circumstances expose our motives, whether we have been just going through the motions or why we are so committed to particular habits in our life. For God's people, as we're here in the Old Testament with this wacky book, Zechariah, Exile was a major circuit breaker in their history. It's a little bit like a COVID lockdown, which just sort of forced change. And so now we're reading the return of a new generation, and God is speaking through a prophet Zechariah about what they should do in this new season of life. We saw a few weeks ago that there were two major problems that this new generation had. They had an unclean high priest and a temple that was under construction. There's been some progress in that as we've seen God cleanse the high priest Joshua and starting to rebuild the temple. And so this promise from God that he would return, that God would again be in their presence, is nearly their current experience. And so the question we see today from God's people is, what exactly do we do now? And now the heart of God's people was a sort of liturgical calendar. And so returning to the homeland and having the temple rebuilt sort of embodies these questions. Okay, well, what do we need to stop doing that we did when we were in exile? What should we start doing now that the temple's going to be back? Are there things that need to change? And so under these questions is some anticipation. We're returning to the land. The temple's being rebuilt that there's signals that this exile, this disruptive event is coming to an end. 
that the punishment from their ancestors is finally being exhausted. And so today we get a question from the people towards God about fasting. A question about what does God require of us? And we hear an answer from God to their question about what is really false and true religion. And so what we're going to see today in this passage is that God doesn't want his people just sort of going through the motions. He doesn't want actions that are just obligatory. God desires that we would be heartfelt in our life, lived for him, and that our actions would be an overflow of our heart being transformed, a heart that is increasingly full of love, mercy, and peace. So just in regards to our structure for our passage today, we see in the first couple of verses uh, the question that is posed. Uh, Then we'll see a response as God sort of dials into a bit of a lecture, uh, talking about the past, talking about the present in chapter 8, and then finishing chapter 8 with an outlook for the future. Firstly, verses 1 to 3, the dating here in verse 1 sort of shows that it's been two years since uh, the opening of the book of Zechariah. And so over those two years, there no doubt would have been some progress in the rebuilding of the new temple. History shows us that it's probably about two years from when the temple is finally completed. And so now we see a question. And we see there that it comes from a group of people from Bethel, and they make an inquiry through some of their delegates. They ask the, peace, the priests and the prophets for some guidance. And already, just in this event of some people coming from Bethel to ask a question, we start to see signs of renewal. Because pre-exile, Bethel was the home of idolatrous worship. One of the previous kings, Jeroboam, had sort of established a rival site of worship there in sort of competition to the temple that had been established and consecrated in Jerusalem, Bethel was a location that was sort of just uh, indicative of how far God's people had transgressed. But now from Bethel, a delegation, they come. And what does it say? They come to entreat the Lord. It's literally a group of people coming to to find God's favourable face. They're wanting to live and act in a way that pleases their God. And so having experienced the curses that come from their ancestors' disobedience, they now approach God to receive blessing, blessing that comes from obedience. And so the good signs are there. These descendants are seeking guidance about what is pleasing to God. In verse 3, we see the question, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month? as we have done for so many years. Now, the question is, should we continue fasting? Now, fasting is a religious practice where you take some time away from your normal patterns of eating to focus your attention on God. And this fast in the fifth month was a fast in relation to the destruction of the temple. And so now, with the new temple being nearly complete, the question is, do we need to still keep doing this? Now, there were other fasts that were embedded in the community of God. They're outlined in 1 Kings 25. Zechariah himself refers to one of them in chapter 7, verse 5, there on the seventh month. But really, underneath this question is, should we continue to mourn and fast because of the temple's destruction? Do we need to continue in this posture of lament and reflection about 
our generation's previous failings? I guess it's really this question. Have we learned our lesson? Do we still need to abstain? Is solemn reflection the posture that you want for us in this season? It seems like a pretty straightforward question, doesn't it? But like a good and perhaps frustrating parent, before the answer is given, a lecture is delivered. And that's really what takes up the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. God responding to this question with a lengthy sermon. And he does that to expose some of the things that are happening under the surface for this generation. You see, rather than just telling them, yep, keep doing it, or no, stop doing it, he replies to their question with a question of his own in verses 5 to 6. You see, questions have the ability to expose things, don't they? And God's question here exposes the past. It's a question exposing how they've been actually going about this fasting and feasting. And God says, was it really for me that you fasted? And were you not just feasting for yourselves? God here is concerned to expose what's really going on for this new generation. Who exactly are they fasting and feasting for? Implied in these questions is that rather than fasting and feasting for God's sake, they fasted to sort of justify themselves through their obedience, and they've indulged in feasts rather than being filled with thanksgiving at the provision that they've had. And so I think within these questions from God, their religious practice for this new generation is exposed as being empty and somewhat misguided. A third question is then posed in verse 7. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through earlier prophets when everything was at rest? And now this description alludes to the time of Jeremiah, pre-exile when God's people were experiencing peace and prosperity, when despite having God with them, God's people reveled in immorality and idolatry. This generation failed to listen to the warning and there would be consequences for their rebellion, the consequences that have played out over the last 70 years. So the message from God to this current generation is the same again. Verses 9 and 10... The words from the Lord Almighty. It's really sort of a direct quote from one of Jeremiah's temple sermons. And that's because God is a God who doesn't change in his character or his expectations. God wants his people to walk in mercy and compassion. He always has and he always will. God desires that his people would be people who protect the vulnerable and defenceless. That they wouldn't be people who hurt one another. God desires that his people's hearts would be for the good of others. It's this picture of not just refraining from evil. The God of the Bible isn't just don't do bad stuff. God desires that we would pursue good, express love. And so this question, what does God want? Well, he wants his people to relate to others in a way that mirrors the way he relates to them. This previous generation that Jeremiah had been the messenger for, they'd ignored the message. They didn't allow God's word to form their behaviour. They didn't take the warnings against disobedience seriously. 
And the allusions to Jeremiah also exposes an incorrect view of God in this new generation. You see, the arrogance of Jeremiah's generation stemmed from a wrong view of God. Their assumption was, hey, we've got the temple, God dwelling among us. That's great security for us. But they also used it as great license to just live however they wanted. That's the wrong view of what God has offered. The right view is that God in your presence is a privilege. It just compels you to live a transformed life that mirrors the God who dwells amongst you. Not that we do that perfectly, that's why there were the priests and the offerings, but lives in a community that is aligned with the very nature of God who dwells amongst his people. And so God exposes the problem of the previous generation in verse 11. They refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs. They covered their ears. They did what they liked. It's really the picture of a toddler having a tantrum, I reckon. Or or maybe a CEO who breaks every ethical standard, who lies to his staff, who bullies and harasses all the employees, but then stands up in front of the board and says, look what I've done to the share price. Jeremiah's generation, before the exile, they stole, they lied, they murdered, and they worshipped other gods, and then they turn up to the temple and they worship the Lord, somehow convincing themselves that what they'd been doing out there didn't matter, that God either didn't know about it or care about it. We can relate to that danger, can't we? That behaviour that we think is private behind closed doors that no one else sees thinking perhaps that God only cares that we turn up here and serve in particular ways, convincing ourselves that God isn't really concerned with how we live out our lives. You see, God called to the previous generation through the prophets. We see that in chapter 7, verse 13. But they wouldn't listen. They treated God like a weak parent that they could just walk over or some royal commission that actually couldn't call them to account This previous generation treated God as if he was powerless to act. They lived as they pleased. But God had called them to account. And they were scattered into exile. The temple, their great source of assurance and security, was destroyed. And so God, having exposed to this new generation that perhaps they're fasting and feasting, hasn't really been for him, but it's been for themselves, by giving them a reminder of what's happened in the past, now turns to the present in chapter 8 to declare what he will do and how God acts is going to shape how they should act. And what he's going to do in the present is going to flow into what's happening into the future. So verses 1 to 17 in chapter 8 highlights God's action in the present. It's a picture of the restoration of relationship post-exile. Chapter 8 begins with sort of these seven oracles that really does allude to a whole range of images and terms that have been already outlaid in the first six chapters of Zechariah. Firstly, in chapter 8, verse 2, we're reminded that the Lord is jealous for his people. Then in verse 3, it's his promise that I will return and dwell in Jerusalem. 
Verses 4 and 5 is this picture of the city being filled with people. Verse 6 gives this description about people marvelling at the restoration that God is bringing. 7 and 8 is a declaration that God will save and restore his people. And then in verses 9 to 13 of chapter 8, it's this encouragement that what they need to do is to be strong in rebuilding the temple and have a real hope of future prosperity. Chapter 8 is reiterating these themes that we've been hearing through the crazy visions in the first six chapters of Zechariah. And it's this idea of God reversing the fortunes of his people because he values relationship with them. You see, it's God's commitment to his people that drives him to deliver on his promises. And it almost sort of gets a sense that that God can't stand this distance that he's had from his people any longer. You see, God being able to be with his people seems to be the heartbeat of God. He's jealous for them. And the promise is is that their present disappointments are going to be reversed. In this opening of chapter 8, these sort of first nine verses, there's some great images, this movement from wartime to playtime from desolation to population. That that great image of the young kids running around and the old people sitting there. We were chatting about it on Thursday night and it's sort of like these are two generations in in any society that need to be cared for. Kids and, and elderly, they're vulnerable at some level. But the picture that God is describing is that these generations that are vulnerable, the kids and the elderly, will be able to flourish in this picture of restoration that is to come. And so God is offering this present generation great assurance. And on the basis of the assurance of what he's going to do, he's inviting them to respond. God is going to bring about restoration, which isn't an excuse to do nothing. But in fact, it's the very reason and motive to act. So again, this key question that they came to God with, what do you want us to do? Well, chapter 8, verse 9. Strengthen your hands because we need you to complete the temple. Verse 13, remember that you are to be a blessing. Verses 16 to 17, speak truth and render justice. Chapter 8, verse 19, love truth, pursue peace. You see, the return of God as manifested by him being in the temple that's been rebuilt, their full return to the land, it doesn't lead to a passive life. It's not the end in itself. It's the means to an end. The end that is portrayed here is a picture of real life, an active life, a community life filled with relationships, people who love truth and care for those in need. And so with... The the relationship restored, God dwelling amongst his people. Obedience is expected to flow from that. You see, it's not a response of just going through the motions. But it's a heartfelt and tangible response. It's a real outflow of love. God's people who have experienced the love of God, who love truth and are at peace. But the present reality for that generation would only ever be a foretaste of what was yet to come. 
So finally, in uh, chapter 8, verse 19, there's an answer after this lengthy sermon, an answer to the original question. Do we need to keep fasting? And the answer is presented with an outlook of what is to come. All of those fasts that you've administered, where you've been looking back to remember the lesson, they're going to be replaced with joyful and glad occasions where you look forward to the great work that God has done. And so the, the fasting isn't to stop because the temple's nearly complete. The completion of the temple isn't the end. Restored relationship is. And the blessings that flow from being in relationship with God is now that God's people will be a blessing beyond themselves. And so the last four verses of chapter 8 finish with this great picture of transformation. Remember chapter 7 started with some delegates from Bethel entreating the Lord, you know, coming to the Lord and saying, we want to live to please you. But how does chapter 8 verse 23 finish? Well, suddenly it's people from the nations who come and entreat the Lord themselves. And now remember how confronting this is, because the nations are those who have damaged, mocked, and ruled God's people in a way that is just hideous. But the future of restoration is that despite disbelief that this could ever occur, that these people could ever come to know God, it's this picture that they will come to seek the Lord. And there's that great image in verse 23 that they're they're taking hold and grasping on to God's people. It's this image of urgency and desire to go with someone. It's sort of like, you know, when when someone knows that there's a better place to be, it's like, please, please take me with you. And why is it so desirable? Well, they say in verse 23, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. That's the future outlook from this restoration that God is doing. The people from all nations will see the change that happens when God dwells with his people. It's not them people just going through the motions, but there is this heartfelt transformation of love and mercy. Now, a compelling vision obviously isn't enough for anyone, and unfortunately for this generation, despite the vivid image, they fail to realise fully what God was doing, but centuries later, when not just a new generation, but a new individual, that Jesus comes and actually embodies this. A human like no other, who didn't just have God dwelling with him, but was actually God dwelling in this world himself. Jesus who comes full of grace and truth, we hear, who himself declared that he was the way, the truth and the life, who loved truth so much that even when it became unpopular for him or inconvenient to his cause, he pursued it above all. Who who expressed love to those who returned no love. He, He actually embodied mercy. He had compassion for those who were deceitful and liars and hurt and marginalized. He had compassion and mercy on the sinners and the outcasts. Such was his love for those that he was able to pray for those who abandoned him, pray for those who mocked him, 
And it's in him that this picture of complete restoration is actually secured. Jesus then becomes this eternal circuit breaker, this worldwide circuit breaker, the one who should actually cause all of us who have lived on this world ever since to ask, why am I doing what I do? Should I keep living this way? You see, Jesus was the one who lived a life that evoked questions and those who followed him started living quite distinct lives. You know, Jesus follows himself. We were looking at this, we're doing Christianity Explored course Sunday afternoons and we're working our way through Mark's Gospel and um, this came up the other week where um, this question came. It says, how can the... When uh, Jesus was questioned why his followers weren't fasting... And uh, he said this, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they'll be fast. They will fast. And Jesus here shows sort of the, the timing of our response. You see, to be with Jesus when he was walking the world was a time of celebration. Jesus predicted that he would leave for a time that would be a time of anguish and mourning. But his leaving was to deal with sin and death and that through his death, this resurrection that had been promised all these years ago would be fully realised and then it would be party time. Then it would be time of full celebration. And so Jesus embodies this promise, this desire of God for his people He was the one who was truly qualified to administer justice, to establish eternal peace, that we can have the real hope of eternal prosperity. And so then for those who hold on to Jesus, who hope that his resurrection means that there is life beyond death, the question for us in this room today who hold to Jesus is this, well, what do we do now? And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's this invitation to to, to hold the very words that give life. And when we hold on to what God has given us in his Son, then we can see what love is, and, and we can see that a life of truth and loving truth actually liberates us. Truth will mean that various aspects of our life are exposed. You know, Sam often talks about that sort of being peeled back like an onion as God sort of reveals truth about ourselves and how, how warped our motives are. I think uh, Liz was saying it out Sunday Bible study the other week. You know, it's, it's, even, it's even when I'm doing good stuff for, for the very wrong reasons that God is exposing truth. A truth that reveals that we need saving, but also the truth of how merciful and loving God is, is that despite knowing us better than anyone knows us, he draws near. And so for us today, with the ultimate security that is found in Jesus, we're invited to live out of the overflow of that. An overflow that means we express love into all aspects of life. That in every aspect of our life, we worship God who is with us. So God doesn't desire a passive life for us, 
We haven't been saved just for ourselves. We've been saved for a life of loving truth and peace. So like the way that God exposed the real motives of this, that present generation, we too need to take some warning seriously about the danger of doing good things for the wrong motives, about just going through the motions and living for self. We are invited to draw near to God who's drawn near to us and to draw near to the things that he loves. God is the God who loves truth. We see it in Jesus that even when it was unpopular and inconvenient for him, he he just loved truth. He extended mercy to people who you'd probably rather not extend mercy to. He had compassion on those who were quite undeserving. And so the book of James gives us a picture of this overflow of God's love and this sort of contrast between true and false religion. It says this, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a great passage that just sort of evokes a life loving truth and loving mercy. Truth, even when it's costly. You know, we've been going through this sort of trying to get some financing through banks and stuff, and you're like, actually telling the truth is really inconvenient. It actually makes this whole process a lot longer, and it feels like the whole system's set up for lies. <laughs> I feel like there's not a lot of people who are submitting true documentation here because it just doesn't make sense. But to love truth, even when it's costly, is to acknowledge that this isn't the kingdom that we live for. We live for the king who loves truth. And so when it's easy to just sort of bend the truth about what we did or stretch the truth about the experience that we've had as we apply for another job, as we love truth even when it's difficult, when relationally it'd just be easier to sort of just let things slide, what does it look like for us to love truth? Speaking the truth lovingly for the good of others. Speaking words of truth that are a true blessing to other people's lives. And this is hard work. Because even if you sort of feel like you've got a, an angle on truth, it's pretty easy to express it thoughtlessly, accusingly, <laughs> competitively, or arrogantly. But to express the truth in love, to be a blessing, is the picture of God, what God is wanting us to do, what he's rescued us for. And loving mercy. Now, it's easy to love mercy when it's popular, when you can put up a poster in your window and people are like, yeah, you're looking out for the marginalised. And nothing, there's anything wrong with that. But to love mercy is to love those who are disadvantaged, marginalised and in need when you don't get any kudos for it. Caring for those who can't care for themselves. Offering people respect and dignity when our society just sort of 
is happy to sweep them under the carpet. It's this life transformed into all aspects of our being. And it's the kind of life that God is bringing in his people. Now, I just sort of want to say that there are seasons where you will actually just go through the motions doing good stuff. It's sort of like, you know, when you're tired and you just, it'd just be easy to order and take out. And then you just like reluctantly just go, what's in the veggie crisper? Some, you know, soft veggies, soft veggies, you know, they're nearly gone. Put them in the steamer, eat it, say nothing and go. You know, like it, it hasn't been a great meal, but it's that decision of consuming good, making a good decision that over time, nutritionally, that's a better decision than just getting takeout. It's a better decision financially over time. There are some opportunities in life where we do go through the motions of doing good. But God's desire is that as we dwell on what he has given us in the promise of dwelling with us, that the overflow would mean that increasingly just a heartfelt change. This increase of of love and mercy in all aspects of our life. And that great picture from verse 23. Give me what you've got. What changed your life? How can you treat that person in that kind of way? Tell me about this God that you believe in. Others will see that God is with us and they will be curious. They will pursue and we have the opportunity to participate in that great privilege of God changing people's lives. Let's pray. Our loving God, we thank you so much that you are the God who knows us and loves us. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises and that you're committed to restored relationship. Father, may we not be people who just go through the motions. Father, if there are aspects of our life where we feel like we are going through the motions, help us to spend time with you considering why are we doing what we're doing? How would you want us to respond? Change our hearts and our lives for your glory and our good. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.